What can you say about what happened in, outside of Chicago yesterday at this July 4th parade? Someone opening fire on a crowd. 38 people injured, seven people killed. We're finding out more about the victims today. Uh, a couple, their, their young child, their two-year-old child was found wandering after they were killed. It, 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 there's, no, there's nothing left to say. There's nothing to say. So this killer fired more than 70 rounds from a rooftop apparently dressing, disguising himself as a woman so he could mix in with the crowd and then climbed up onto a rooftop where he was hard to see. He's been arrested. Um, he faces charges. The state attorney in Illinois today uh, said he'll be held without bail. Eric Reinhardt says if convicted, he will face life in prison with no chance of parole. These seven counts of first-degree murder will lead to a mandatory life sentence should he be convicted without the possibility of parole. These are just the first of many charges that will be filed against Mr. Cremo. I want to emphasize that. There will be more charges. We anticipate dozens of more charges centering around each of the victims. Psychological victims, physical victims. Police say the gunman legally bought two high-powered rifles and three other weapons, despite authorities being called to his home twice in 2019, including for violent threats. Now, the July 4th shooting, it's the latest. We've had Uvalde. We've had Buffalo. We've had ones I can't even remember now because they happen so often. What do you say? What is there to say? It's a crisis in America. Here at home, police on Vancouver Island today provided an update on the condition of the six officers wounded in a shootout with two bank robbery suspects in Victoria a week ago today. One of the officers who was injured remains in intensive care. Here is uh, Sanich's chief constable. Our third injured officer who is in hospital remains in the ICU and has undergone three surgeries to date. He has eight years of service with SPD and has served our community in patrol, the community engagement division, and of course with GVERT. He continues to be surrounded by the love and the support of his family and has been showing signs of improvement day by day. Now the suspects in this case were both killed during that shootout, both 22 brothers, twins. They had no criminal records. They were not known to police. A motive is still being investigated, but it appears they were in no rush, according to witnesses to get away or avoid a confrontation with police. Was that the point all along to confront police? Social media posts had plenty of images of them with photos, of firearms and confrontations with police of the past, including a 1997 North Hollywood bank heist that we told you about last night on the show, Waco, Texas, and so on. So what to make of it all? Alienated, antisocial young men who turned to acts of extreme, barbaric acts of violence. There aren't many answers out there, but we thought we'd find try to find someone who had some insight into this, and we did. Ari Kaglansky has been researching this sort of violence for decades. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Maryland. He's the author of books including Three Pillars of Radicalization and the upcoming The Uncertainty Paradox, and he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I guess for listeners, just to understand a bit about what your work is, because you've uh, you've explored a certain facet uh, of psychology for for a long time, and what is it, what is it that you research? I'm interested in how people become radicalized, particularly radicalized uh, into violence. Uh, we have studied that uh, all over the world with uh, terrorists of various kinds, uh, Islamist terrorists, uh, 
ethno-nationalist terrorists, uh, far-right uh, uh, violent extremism, uh, all kinds in different uh, regions of the world, because the, the process that leads to radicalization is universal. The same uh, general variables, the same general factors appear again and again and again. What are those factors and where is that line that one can draw between, say, a, a young man who runs off to join ISIS uh, t- t- eight years ago versus what we're witnessing in the U.S. right now? The, the underlying motivation, you know, when, whenever you talk about human behavior, uh, the basic question is what motivates it? And motivation, uh, all our goals, everything that we do uh, at the end of the day come to basic needs that are served by those goals. Those needs are universal. And the universal needs that is at the bottom of radicalization is what we call the need for significance. This is the need for dignity, for status, for prestige, to matter, to be somebody, to count. Now, the way this fundamental need is satisfied varies according to cultural circumstances, according to uh, time and place and, and, and occasion. Uh, so uh, for people who are exposed culturally to the Islamist jihadist ideology, uh, for them, the way to satisfy the quest for significance is to fight the enemies of Islam through uh, suicide bombing, uh, joining ISIS, traveling to Syria, fighting in the ranks of Al-Qaeda and so forth. Uh, for far-right terrorists, far-right extremists, uh, the narrative is very different. Uh, They talk about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, there is a white replacement theory. There are enemies at the gates in the form of uh, ethnic groups, immigrants, uh, refugees, maybe the government, maybe there is a Jewish conspiracy, maybe homosexuals, whoever. And these have to be fought tooth and nail. Uh, So, you know, the the narrative is very different. The circumstances in which the narrative is uh, people are exposed to that narrative are different, but the narrative serves the same function. And the third element, we talk about three ends. The need, the narrative. The third end is the network. People who support the narrative. Uh, this could be a group on the social media. It could be a group uh, of your friends, of your relatives, uh, whoever uh, forms that group and whose good opinion, whose respect you seek. So these three elements showed up time and time again, whether uh, it's an Islamist terrorist, uh, a shooter like uh, we just saw uh, in uh, Illinois or in Canada uh, or or anywhere else. The the same three elements uh, together produce radicalization. You call this a shortcut to fame. A shortcut to fame, yes. You know, we we have... examine the issue of violence uh, in psychology in general. And uh, it is clear that violence is a primordial means to gaining status, especially for young males. Uh, this has been so, you know, in the, in a, uh, in the time of hunter-gatherers. Uh, it is so, to a large extent, uh, for males uh, these days. It's a kind of primordial means to become dominant, to become powerful. Uh, and uh, therefore... Uh, when other means are unavailable or very difficult to accomplish. It's difficult to have a very successful career, uh, to attain uh, you know, uh, achievements, uh, to be somebody. Uh, to become violent is very easy. 
especially when, when there is a narrative that tells you, yes, you've got to do it because there is enemy at the gates and you've got to stand up and fight against that enemy. How then does one go from uh, the beginnings of this process to literally opening fire on innocent people, on children, on seniors? How, how, how does one cross that line psychologically? First, the, the, the need for significance needs to be activated. And it can be activated in one of two ways. One is a significance loss. For example, the, the case in Canada, these two young people uh, were very quiet, uh, very unassuming. Uh, it seems that they d- did not have much visibility. Uh, I, would, uh, I would venture to, to, to suggest that they did not have much significance uh, because of their withdrawn, shy personality, and uh, therefore they create significance. Uh, the possibility of, of uh, gaining significance through violence was uh, conveyed by the narratives that uh, blamed the government, blamed uh, all kinds of policies uh, on, on, uh, on making people insignificant, of, of disenfranchising people, on being unfair, uh, so once you have that narrative and the, the con- conjoined to their sense of insignificance, uh, this is an opportunity for them to be somebody. And uh, finally, the two uh, men had one another. So the network element is, even though it's a very small network, but it's the met- network that counts. It's the microcosm of, of a society. And when these three elements uh, come together, uh, the, the narrative suggests that you know those victims are are uh, a good a worthy price to pay for what they're going to attain uh they w- once once that need becomes so extreme alternative considerations are suppressed human beings are very capable of suppressing inconvenient ideas and when one need becomes so dominant to be significant there is a way of becoming significant the fact that these are children uh innocent uh, civilians and so forth doesn't matter. This is all swept under the rug and suppressed. How much has social media and the advances in social media and social networks contributed to what we're seeing now, do you think? The social media have made a qualitative contribution to to the, the whole problem in two ways. One is that it is now easy for whatever your extreme views are to find similarly minded people on the social media. Uh, in in uh, days of yore, this was very difficult. If you had deviant uh, opinions, deviant attitudes, it was difficult to find other people who, who had similar views. Now, uh, all it takes is search on the social media and you're going to find the network that supports your narrative. So that's one thing. The second thing is the nar- that the the media, uh, the social media have emphasized the, the quest for significance to an unprecedented degree. Uh, how many likes you have? How many people are watching you? How many friends do you have on, the, uh, on Facebook? These things catapult the quest for significance to an unprecedented degree. Uh, and if you combine these two contributions, you see that the social media really uh, made a huge difference. I'm speaking with Ari Kuglansky. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, author of books, including The Three Pillars of Radicalization and the upcoming The Uncertainty Paradox. We're talking about what drives people, young men specifically, psychologically, 
to mass shootings, to mass murder. Why does it happen? Uh, it's often inexplicable. We're often left astounded every time it happens. But as Professor Kruganski points out, there are lines that can connect from incidents that happen overseas, whether it be radical terrorism abroad or shootings in North America. When we come back, the obvious question, how do you fight it? That's next. My guest this half hour is Ari Kruglansky. He's a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Maryland. He's also the author of numerous books, including The Three Pillars of Radicalization and the upcoming The Uncertainty Paradox. We've been discussing psychologically what propels young men specifically uh, to acts of mass violence, to acts of, of horror, really. Um, professor Kruglansky, it does beg the question, how do you stop it? Well, it's a very difficult question because, uh, you know, there, it's one thing to understand how it happens, and the second thing to translate it into policies and the actions that would uh, reduce it. But there are some ways that we can think about and people have been thinking about, first of all, denying the significance to the mass shooters by reducing the media attention, reducing attention to their names, refocusing on the victims rather than the shooters. Uh, so that would be a very important uh, way. The second thing is that was debated end endlessly in this country was reducing uh, the opportunity to uh, to purchase uh, uh, guns, long guns, uh, automatic weapons, assault weapons, and so forth. Uh, this, you know, the ease with which it, it can this can be uh, obtained um, makes uh, the, the the opportunity of uh, gaining significance through violence much more accessible. So that needs to happen as well. Uh, we need to, to create alternative ways for people to gain significance. Uh, we have to pay attention to people who are uh, suffering from, from insignificance, whether it be because of uh, economic inequalities. Uh, so, you know, it's not a... It's not a, a, a a matter that can be resolved by psychologists alone, it's a matter for the entire society. It has to be combated on every level, economic level, level of, of economic inequalities, uh, in schools, in, in community centers, uh, in religious institutions, uh, and so forth. It's, it's a big problem that is now fractionating society and polarizing it all over the globe. I mean, as someone who's followed this for such a long time, as someone who's watched the evolution of this for so long, what do you make of what's happened of late, uh, specifically in the U.S.? But we saw the examples of ISIS, uh, you know, a decade ago. Uh, we seem to have entered a new era of this. We do. We do. The world is now at a very uh, difficult inflection point. Uh, there are several reasons that uh, scholars have been pointing out. One is uh, the uh, uncertainty. You talked about the uncertainty principle. There is a great uncertainty uh, because of the quick uh, pace of globalization that leaves many people behind, uh, the refugee crisis uh, that uh, is uh, bringing, uh, at, at this point, there's 100 million uh, uh, display, internally displaced people uh, on Earth, and given the advent of climactic event, uh, there are some estimates they by 2050, there's going to be 1 billion such people. And these people exert tremendous pressures on societies to absorb them. And this creates a backlash uh, and feeds into people's fear of the, of the stranger, uh, their xenophobia. They, they sense that their, their countries are being taken away from them. So all of that, and this is happening because of uh, regional conflicts, because of uh, climate change, because of 
uh, a variety of economic reasons. Uh, but you know, this creates a situation in which extreme movements that uh, uh, that prey on people's vulnerability uh, ascend to power. They promise to make America great again, to make Germany great again, to make uh, other countries great again, which means to make you great again. Uh, so this, these populist movements are gaining ascendance uh, everywhere the eye strikes. Uh, it creates uh, uh, autocratic regimes that are uh, more prone to violence than, than other places. So uh, you see now uh, the, the quest for significance by uh, Vladimir Putin is creating a war uh, in Europe, the first uh, such a war in, in you know, uh, many decades. Uh, so the world is in a very uh, dangerous spot. And we need to uh, recruit all the powers of science, of society, uh, of decency to uh, counter th these uh, unfortunate developments. Do you have any hope that that will be done? Uh, one has to have hope. Uh, we, you know, we cannot give up. We cannot give up because uh, the alternative is deterioration of the kinds that we, uh, we have not seen in our lifetime. So, you know, we've got to unite all the forces for the good and, and try to oppose it uh, by, by, you know, the psychology knows what, what needs to be done. The question is translating, translating it into willpower, political willpower, communal willpower, uh, getting enough of a momentum uh, behind the social movement to oppose these things worldwide. Eric Kuglansky, thank you so much for your insight tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you.